0: dude what up with the nothing good ever comes out of texas things i think i said that in one of the episodes i proceeded to explain that i did not have a good experience in texas this
1: is justin smith of palmetto coast exotics this is jacob Ross with jlb morelia and you are listening to the Herpetoculture podcast
0: What's going on, guys? This is episode 14 of the Herpeticulture Podcast. I am Jacob Bratz with JLB Morelli, and as always, I'm here with...
1: Justin Smith, Palmetto Coast Exotics, and we are here today to talk about vivariums and cool naturalistic setups with Alex Romer. Uh, how's it going, man? Pretty good. How are you guys doing? Doing
0: good. Good, man. Good, good.
1: We're here for, for you to, to school us on, yeah. on vivariums because we use our our plain bounty... Paper towel setups are <laughs> <our> eyesores. Yeah. <laughs>
2: well, I just feel glad to you know have the chance to talk to a lot more people about this uh, way of keeping reptiles. I feel it really benefits the animals that we keep in them.
1: Yeah, yeah and you know sure. I'm I'm really curious too to to hear what you have to say about it because it's something I've I've always kind of wanted to do but just kind of with the and maybe it's just because I don't know much about it but the, you know the upkeep and stuff of uh of setups like that and doing them right and making sure they kind of last is, is kind of been the only thing that sort of deferred me from doing it. But yeah, that,
0: that's always been my thing, you know, cause I've, <laughs> I've always, I always want like a lot of animals and you know, it's, I, I've always, it always seems like, you know, with the, uh, one of the vivariums, you know, a naturalistic or bioactive, uh, setup, it just seems like a lot of upkeep when you have, you know, a high number of animals, you know, um, not that I wouldn't be interested in doing it, I definitely would be. Mm-hmm. You know, with something like dart frogs or you know something like that. A kitten, but, uh, a kitten. <laughs> I'm do this bioactive setup for for Mister Mister Mutton. The substrate here. is litter.
2: <laughs> yeah, so I would actually say that you know we'll get into it a little bit today, and since we're doing introductions, I'll say that. Uh, I actually am kind of an ecologist by trade, and I work with reptiles professionally,
0: Okay. Uh,
2: and so I just kind of naturally got pulled into this way of keeping reptiles, All and right. when you set these systems up properly, I find that they're actually less maintenance in the long term than the traditional way of keeping reptiles, so we'll get into that a little bit more today as we start to talk about them, but maybe I can kind of give you guys a little bit of a paradigm shift, when in you, what you guys think of what it means to do maintenance on a vivarium.
1: For sure. Okay. That's what that's what we, we want you here for, man. Yeah, that's yeah. what the, yeah. the show is all about is paradigm shifting. Yeah. But uh what's your when did you start getting into reptiles and when did you get into the the natural setups and, and everything yeah, else like that? So
2: I think the first reptile I ever owned was a pair of green and that I got from my neighbor as a little kid. They were kind of like a rescue situation. And As a kid, I kept a couple of different species of reptiles, you know, green anoles, that kind of thing. But none of them were ever bioactive. And then in college, I was getting a degree in fishery science, and I decided I was going to get a pet crested gecko. And I kind of saw this new world of uh, naturalistic vivariums and got sucked into the idea that that was maybe a uh, higher quality way to provide husbandry for our animals. Right. I just got sucked down the rabbit hole. And so ever since then, I've really dove right back into the hobby and have kept basically all of my animals on bioactive enclosures. Uh, so do you guys want me to go through some of the animals that I've been keeping on uh, bioactive since my
0: yeah. re-entrance? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely.
2: So one of them on the list isn't actually a reptile, but it is, in my opinion, a naturalistic vivarium. And we can kind of get into that later. But one of them was a pair of sparkling grommies, which is a fish. And the others were oh, nice. gargoyle geckos, uh, two species of poison dart frogs, uh, dendrobates leucamilus and dendrobates tinctorius. Um, and Madagascar montane skink, which doesn't really have a trade name, so I'll have to refer to it as amphigolossus Uh And then African fire skinks and a flying gecko.
0: Okay. cool. Okay.
2: they are is they're about head to tail. They're about eight inches long but they're only about the diameter of a pencil and they live in cloud forests in Madagascar and like montane scrub. And so I had a buddy and we were at this expo together and we saw them and I thought I could sex them because I had sexed other species of skinks before and so we decided to bring them home and we brought them home, looked into climate data for the region, looked into IUCN red list data. They are uh, a non-threatened species, but there is information about them through the IUCN. And uh, we were actually able to put together the what, in our opinion, would be the proper care requirements for this animal just based on the scientific and climactic data that was available for this uh, highly niche species in the hobby. So that's one of my proudest species that I keep. They're incredibly rewarding. I uh, keep them in a ten gallon, and they have an incredible amount of space in there relative to their size. And they come out and beg for food and hunt. <laughs> uh, incredibly cool species to keep.
1: That's cool. I've like dart frogs have been sort of the top of my list of if I ever do this, like that's what i that's what I'd end up doing it on probably. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a lot of people that do green trees. They do chondros with those. Mm-hmm. Uh, right, and the, the that corner of the hobby is pretty evenly split on whether or not you should or should not. Um, usually the argument for not doing them is you're introducing the animal to microbes and micro fauna that they wouldn't typically or naturally be exposed to, mm-hmm. um, which I kind of get, cause if you're using, you know, substrate and plants that aren't even native to, you know, wherever they, whatever the animal comes from, um, it kind of makes sense. But at the same time, it's like if it's in a captive environment it wouldn't necessarily be it wouldn't be exposed to that stuff most of the time anyway so i don't know i'm kind of split on it like i feel like if you're going to do it go ahead um i prefer the simple setups and just because it's you know it's easier to clean i go for for efficiency over aesthetics pretty much nine times out of ten so Mm
2: -hmm. but i do think it's important to consider that vivarium's do offer much more than just aesthetics. So if we take it back to the the bacteria thing, it's actually interesting you brought that up because in my professional line of work, I work with uh, snake disease and I happen to also work with how that disease affects the microbiome of snakes. So the bacteria that grow on the skin of snakes. And while it's true that you or I could probably never go to Costa Rica and dig up uh, handfuls of soil and bring it back to inoculate our tanks with bacteria, which would be amazing. Even if we did that, the communities would change because the comu- the conditions in our vivariums would be different than the naturalistic conditions. But I right. think what really matters is that we're by providing a system that is naturalistic in terms of having similar conditions and similar microbes even to what they might experience in nature. So maybe it's not the same bacteria, but maybe they do the same kind of thing in nature mm-hmm. and provide our animals the ability to do behaviors that would be normal and healthy for them that they would not otherwise have the ability to do in a more minimalistic enclosure
1: yeah it's like i said it's something that i like i kind of hear like the arguments on both sides and i get both sides but it's like if you know if keeping things in naturalistic setups was so detrimental i don't think nearly as many people would be doing it Mm-hmm. Uh, I kind of get it with like imported chondros and imported animals. Like I can under- kind of understand because with chondros, you know, as soon as they stress, the uh, the immune system kind of gets compromised, and then the the nasty stuff you can't see just kind of takes hold. Oh, um, abs-
2: I would never say that there's not a place for sterile enclosures. In fact, I think that if you, what I would say is that the, the reason we kept animals in sterile enclosures for a long time is because we got really really good at keeping them sterile, right? So yeah. if we can't if we can't maintain the system that works in in terms of being naturalistic a sterile enclosure is almost always going to work for an animal so i I do think even for animals that ideally are kept in natural enclosures there's always a place for more minimalistic enclosures in the hobby
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um so just looking over our little outline we got here um where if you know if somebody asks you they want to they want to start and to get they want to get into vivarium and bioactive uh setup you know where where would you tell them to start you know what kind of what kind of species would you recommend to to go with say they're not really um they're more interested in the cage versus what's what's being kept in it so what's a good species to start with you know to kind of get into this whole bioactive world sure So
2: I'll give you I'll give you a species and then I'll give you a follow up question. Great. So the species I would recommend for a beginner is actually one that's not usually kept in naturalistic vivariums that often, but I think it should be. And it's extremely common within the hobby. So I could recommend dart frogs, which Mm -hmm. are not that cheap, or I could recommend uh, crested geckos, which can be fairly expensive depending on what you're looking at. Mm -hmm. But I think if you are looking to do a bioactive setup, it's important that you invest a lot of your time and your energy into the enclosure itself. And then your animal is the, if you will, cherry on top of the sundae of that system. Right. And so I really think that green anoles are an excellent candidate for a beginner vivarium setup. There is a species that really thrives on pockets of high humidity, which is something that I think we often fail to provide them in yeah. captive. They're readily available, and they're extremely interesting. So you have males that display with the dewlap, and the mm-hmm. females will actually bury their eggs inside the enclosure, and they don't need that much space. You could start with a trio and a 29-gallon, or a pear and a 20-gallon, and that would be not only a happy screen Knolls, it probably in the county, but they would give you extremely interesting behaviors and they're not that destructive. So I really think even though they're not often uh, advertised as a common vivarium species, there's something that we should be looking much more as, at as a common vivarium inhabitant in the hobby.
1: Yeah, that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely understand that.
1: Cause that Yeah. I mean, in that case, like, you know, you're investing in a, in a decent setup, but you're not, you know, going and spending $600 on a condo or something more expensive, Right. It's kind of a good, good entry point.
0: Kind of just to test the waters. I also feel like something with that, you definitely want to start small to see if if the bioactive thing is something you actually want to do, Mm -hmm. you know, start with green anoles and you're in a small 20 gallon uh, or 29 gallon setup. And uh, see if it's something that you can upkeep, see if something see if it's something that you actually wanna do going forward and if it you find out something you really enjoy, then maybe take a, the next step up to something a bit larger, maybe a different a different species right. and really um and really go from there with
1: those it. are nice too, because they're active during the day. Like you can right. actually yeah, see yeah, them yeah, out exactly. doing stuff. They're not gonna be tucked away in the corner sleeping until you know the right. lights go out. So that's that's a I didn't really I never would have really and thought you go about back them. To-
2: Door, six months later and you'll realize how amazing your animals look in that setup compared mm-hmm. to the animals that are crammed into a petco, petco tank you know what I'm saying right yeah, yeah
0: exactly so mm-hmm. with with a setup like that you know I this is one thing I saw recently somebody that did um the bioactive setups um he had it was quite a large enclosure, um, but it, it was actually really cool. He had like a small pond going in it, you know, a little waterway. But one thing he had is that like, he had green anoles, but he also had like a couple green tree frogs and another species of anole, even though this was a very large tank. Is it is mixing mixing species something that is uh, easier to accomplish and, you know, safe in, in this type of environment?
2: Well... I would never say that mixing species is without risk because right. apparently species interact in the wild and not always in ways that are con- conducive to maybe a herpticulturalist. Yeah. But I would say that. So depending on the, the third species of anole, green anoles and white tree frogs do cohabitate in the wild. Uh, and I think one thing that maybe I, I left out about green anoles and white tree frogs is that they're native to the US. And so right. in some parts of the US, it's not legal to go and own native species. But when you can own native species, you have the fantastic benefit of being able to go out and physically observe what their habitat looks like, which is especially important for the construction of ivariums. So maybe you go out and you go herping, which for those who don't know, is going out in the woods and looking for reptiles and amphibians. And if you happen to live in a state where you keep green tree, or where you have green anoles and white tree frogs, you can actually see uh, how they're distributed in that space. So maybe they're living on different branches, and you can try to
1: incorporate that into yeah, the you know. design of your enclosure. You can you can replicate where you're kind of finding them, and that gives you a better idea of how to keep them. You know, right. we, get, we get so many species that no, a lot so of people I, don't have a clue about kind of what their natural history and, and what their actual environment's like, and they likely couldn't point out where they come from on a map. Right. Uh, so that is kind of a home field advantage, in a way, with, with being able to do that. Yeah.
2: And I would say that even though I've personally never cohabitated species in a vivarium, I'm actually about to try that. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Some Felsumo laticata, which are... Uh, oh, nice. Best echoes, yeah. And uh, Dendrobates tinctorius, because mm-hmm. I have a tank that's basically got a canopy of um, ficus in the top of it, where it's basically dark on the bottom of the vivarium. It looks like a forest floor. Uh, So I think there should be... That's an example where this tank has been growing in for more than a year now. Mm -hmm. And I feel confident that there's enough space and there's different levels of that environment to accommodate more than one species.
1: How big is that tank?
2: So that's actually not that big of a tank. It's only an 18-inch cube. But I think more than important than the volume is the complexity of the environment within it and the relative ecologies of the species that are going into it. So yeah. where are they going to be in the tank? When are they going to be out? What are they going to be doing in the tank?
1: So uh, as far as, like, when you go and do you decide that you... What is kind of the, the step-by-step for what you decide you want to make and what you want to have in it? You know, what, what sort of decides what plants you want to use? Because uh, I know, like, some people... I've seen people keep dart frogs in relatively simple, you know, quote-unquote vivariums that are pretty much, like, basic, like, it works, it's not anything super lavish, it's not anything super fancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, is well, there I- is there some way to, and I guess this is, like, two questions, um, mm-hmm. but is there a way to get a naturalistic setup, you know, bioactive, that's also not anything... Uh, super hardcore you know is it is it possible to do something simpler and it still work kind of the way you would want it to
2: yeah so let me actually break this down because we haven't really defined some of these terms for people who maybe have never even thought about keeping a vivarium Uh so to me an enclosure right is anything we put an animal into i think that's a term we can pretty much all agree upon
0: definitely yep
2: and so a vivarium and to me is something that's a bioactive enclosure and so the term bioactive really means that your system is recycling nutrients. And so the way we accomplish that in the modern field of vivarian keeping is through the use of microinvertebrates and live plants. And so are you guys familiar with the use of springtails or isopods yep. in vivarium? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Personally, yep. I, I don't know much about it. I've heard of it, but nah, I haven't looked into it in a great deal.
2: Okay. So basically, when you when you feed your basic when you think of a vivarium, this is like a closed ecosystem. Everything that you put into that ecosystem stays inside of it. Right. Um, Yes. And so when you feed your animals, those nutrients, if you just take them out, are leaving the system. And so by providing uh, springtails and isopods, which are basically little insects that break down waste and release it back into the soil, you're allowing plants to retake up those nutrients and convert it into plant Um, mass and so that's what makes the system bioactive is basically the recycling of nutrients from food and animal waste back into plant biomass and that makes it kind of a functioning ecosystem in a sense Mm -hmm. and I would say that the the next level on top of a vivarium that maybe people are starting to get into more now would be microcosms which are tanks that in some way replicate processes in nature and so that might be, uh, I've seen tanks where people have mud skippers and they flood them uh, on the tidal cycle and things like that. Uh, or people have, uh, for example, flying geckos and they design them so that the animal can glide between different spaces in them. And so when you're actually designing your enclosure specifically to an individual animal to allow processes that are important to that animal to take place. And so I think those are kind of the the major distinctions that exist within different animal enclosures within the hobby at the moment.
1: It's funny, like bioactive, it seems to me is like a term that gets thrown around kind of loosely now. Like people think they just yeah. add some springtails and some isopods and really like, imagine it's bioactive now. Like it's, well, that and, is bioactive. Yeah. So
2: anything with springtails and isopods and plants is bioactive by definition.
0: Okay. That's, that's interesting. So at, for like the plants that you keep in there, is there any type of you know uh, upkeep for to keep those things healthy? Like, do you have to keep adding isopods and springtails, or you know, do you have to? What kind of maintenance on the actual plants do you have to? Do you have to put in to keep it you know a, a healthy ecosystem going?
2: Yeah, so I think part of that is kind of come down to the tastes and skill of the keeper so in my tanks for example i had an african violet and a begonia which kind of are both short shrubby plants growing next to each other Mm -hmm. i decided that i was going to let them grow until one of them shaded the other one out and then that would be the the other one that got shaded out would basically rot away and rot back into the soil and be used by the winning plant and so in science we call that succession Mm -hmm. and that's what i let happen and so i did no work and one of the plants rotted away and that was the african violet and the begonia got really big And so that was no work on my part. Or you could be a really meticulous keeper and go, no, I have to have both of these plants in this tank. I don't want that to happen. And you could go in every day, you know, and trim them and make sure that that, things like that don't happen. Um, So I think part of it does come down to the keeper's own tastes and how much they want to manicure their tanks. Uh, Personally, I look at events like that as part of the system. And so I'm very hands off. Uh, in terms of how much I get in and actually work with my plants. Um, but in terms of maintenance, like I spray probably less than a uh, minimalistic enclosure would, maybe two to three times a week because mm. the enclosures are pretty tightly sealed up. Uh, and I do have to replace the microinvertebrates with the dart frogs more than I do with any other species. So if you have like a big fire skink, then she doesn't care about eating little tiny bugs right. in the soil but if you have dart frogs and they're going to be all about, about them okay, they're sitting there eating springtails all day long <laughs> uh, so i think it really comes down to the animals and also the taste of the keeper but in my opinion i found that uh generally i, I spend less than an hour a week uh on all my vivariums
0: that's a yeah i guess that goes uh, to what you're saying about you know it being less upkeep than uh then uh, our, you know, kind of basic setups, you know, stuff to get you by because, um, you know, me, you know, I've got, you know, I've got 25 snakes right now and, you know, they're all in, you know, your basic paper towel hides place to climb water dish type deal. Um, but man, whenever I, I clean, you know, every week and what if I if I clean every enclosure, I'm up in my room for two and a half, three hours, you know, it's, it's also because, you know, I leave my animals out, try and take some pictures here and there, you know, but I also go through, change all the paper towels, disinfect everything Mm -hmm. all the way down to the bone, you know, and for the smaller snakes and the smaller tubs, you know, it's a little bit quicker, but when I get into, you know, changing out my four foot cages and dealing with the big snakes, then, you know, it's definitely a, definitely a process. Sure. Um, so, would you ever think about keeping, like I say, something like a carpet Python, you know, a larger species in, in a bioactive setup, you know, is that something you would ever consider or do yourself? Yeah.
2: And I think there's this, and I'm not saying there are no species that can be kept in vivariums realistically. So yeah. like if you gave me, you know, a million dollars in a football field, I could probably keep an anaconda and a bioactive, but you know, people <laughs> don't do that. So I would say that, with certain exceptions, most species can be kept in vivariums at home, including animals that have a bad reputation for vivariums, like ball pythons and carpet pythons.
0: Yeah, because that, that's one thing I hear about, you know, when people want to set up a naturalistic enclosure, you know, not not necessarily bioactive, but just, you know, fake plants and, you know, wood pieces, things like that. Uh, you know, they ask for tips on how to do that, and a lot of, you know, uh, big time people pipe in and they they're like, you know, carpets are very destructive. Anytime you add plants, they're just going to tear them down, you know, so they kind of go for more of the simple stuff that you can't, you can't really make fall. Like me, what I do is, you know, I've got, you know, my paper uh, substrate and then I use PVC pipe for purchase. You know, I'll build something that can't really tip over mm-hmm. so they can't wide destroy base, it. Yeah, yeah. Wide base. I don't do plants and stuff like that. Um, so that is, that, de- that's definitely one thing I've heard about, you know, carpets and more, not necessarily bioactive, but again, just a naturalistic setup. They, they'll crush plants and everything. They can't the be sort. any
1: more destructive than rat snakes are.
0: You're not lying.
1: <laughs> I have yet to find a snake that is m- more destructive than my bears rats or the corns. Like I'll change their paper and they'll just knock the water bowl over. They'll like move all the paper towel to one end of the tank. Uh, yeah. And it's just like, Oh my God, stop.
0: Yeah, for but sure. you get used to it after a while. Um, but you were telling me something about, you know, if somebody was interested in, you know, doing a bioactive enclosure for a larger species like a carpet, you know, you said something about growing a type of tree. Uh, what what could you tell us anything about that?
2: Yeah. And so I think kind of, before, I'll get into that, but I would say that, you know, like if we put green anoles in a system, right, right, we're dealing with a very small species where if we're putting like a carpet python in there, that's... It's not quite an apex predator, but we're dealing with a much larger predator. Right. And so we exactly. have to think about often people will cycle their vivariums. So they'll let their, plant, their plants start to grow before they put their inhabitants in. And so I think the larger your animal is and the more of it, an impact your animal is going to have on that system, the more you need to kind of cycle your vivarium. The more that system needs to be prepared before you can throw a large mm-hmm. rat. And so, also, I would say the larger your enclosure is, obviously, the more you can kind of disperse the effects of that animal across the system. Right. And so that is one thing about vivariums. If you wanted to do, like, a nice carpet python vivarium, I might do, like, a really big tank, like, way bigger than any breeder could do on a large scale. Yeah. Uh, I'm not saying vivariums are necessarily the end-all-be-all for, like, commercial breeding operations. Right, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And so, for example, if I was going to work with a large, heavy bodied snake species like that, we were talking and I was saying, well, I would just take like a year beforehand and I would grow some ficus trees in there, which are like trees that you can get at Home Depot. People usually have them in their living rooms and stuff like that next to their lamps. Um, I've seen people use them in um, like uh, Madagascar, leaf tailed gecko enclosures because Mm -hmm. they provide like really nice, good, bushy habitat. And it's a trick. I mean, if you let it root in your enclosure for a year and really grow, develop some nice branches, a carpet python might break some branches off, but it's not going to pull it out of the ground. Um, but if I take a pothos plant from Home Depot and stick it in the ground and let it grow for two days and then stick it, you know, I don't know how big carpet pythons are in terms of their mass. Maybe you can fill me in here. Um, but just throw it in the tank and then watch it get crushed and go, well, carpet pythons can't be done with vivariums.
0: Um, yeah, you know, I, it's very... I... yeah i definitely see where you're going with that because you know the carpets are you know even your smallest species of carpet are you know they're they're a heavier bodied species but especially when you get in something like uh brettles brettles pythons or you know coastals they're they're a fairly large species you know my female is my big female coastal is several pounds and pushing and you know around close to seven foot long so right. she's she's definitely a heavy you know heavier animal you know anything that wasn't real secure in the ground she would absolutely crush. Well, that's the thing know. is I
1: don't even know if it's necessarily a weight thing. I think it's more of an activity thing. Yeah, oh yeah. Because like they, if they you, have definitely a, more active you have a blood snakes. python, you're probably not yeah. gonna have to worry about things getting destroyed as much. Yeah, but, definitely. You know, carpets and colubrids and stuff that are more active are likely gonna probably tear things up more than your ambush style. You know, stockier sedentary kind of snakes and species
0: for sure i could definitely see something like a blood python doing doing better in a bioactive Mm -hmm. situation um so alex one one thing i was I, i i just was thinking about um what about a species like say somebody you know wants to get into the bioactive thing but they want to keep a species that doesn't that doesn't do well in high humidity situations because I feel like you know, and I could totally be wrong, but I feel like a lot of bioactive stuff you know is in the higher percentages of humidity. Um, what if it's more of a dry species? Is that temperate? Is that possible to do in a bioactive situation?
2: Absolutely. And so I just want to say right off the bat that my experience with arid bioactive setups are limited. Uh, I have I did a, a kind of a, a grassland setup for my fire skink, uh, but I would say that. I've seen some arid, um, vivariums that have absolutely made me drool. Uh, and I think in my personal opinion, the, the happiest looking leopard geckos are the ones that are kept in substrates where they can actually dig and burrow themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, the, if you've seen a leopard gecko dig versus one that's been on uh paper towels entire life, uh, it's just a fascinating thing to watch them excavate and come out during the day, uh, to bask under UV. Um, so what I will say is that if you do decide you want to do an arid species, I think that's great because it means that you haven't just read an article about how to do a tropical vivarium and go, okay, that's what I'll do, and then I'll stick my species in there and it'll go awesome. Uh, and but you will have to use basically a very different style of cleanup crew. And yeah, that's because... what I
1: was going to ask. Is like, what do you? Yeah, how I, do you I, go I, about ma- like bioactivating uh, that if right. you don't have? Yeah, you can't and use so, the, the traditional stuff.
2: It depends on how arid we're talking. And so let's say maybe we were doing like a five-line skink vibranium. Mm-hmm. There are temperate um, springtails that are available in the hobby. And so that's a good place to start. Uh, whereas if we're talking more of like a desert species, so maybe like a Texas banded gecko or a leopard gecko. Or,
0: so, or something like, say, like a Euromastix. Yeah. You yeah, know, something that's Eurom- extremely dry. One.
2: Yeah. Uh, Euromastix is we are starting to get to that point where so the other thing is we also have to consider how much actual decomposition is occurring in these organisms like uh, home range. So yeah. in the rainforest, we have lots of decomposition going on all the time. But right. maybe your which really come from a very arid environment, um, maybe their waste isn't being processed in the environment. Um, and so I have to admit, I, I actually know very little about Euromastics um, vivariums. I know a little bit about their care uh, and I know a little bit about arid vivariums. Uh, but that's just a particular niche that I'm not that familiar with, so mm-hmm. I won't delve into it. Uh, but there are some species that maybe just physiologically wouldn't work in the way that we're thinking of a truly recycling system because to provide the conditions that we would want for that animal wouldn't also facilitate the recycling of material.
0: Huh. Uh, gotcha. So I, I definitely feel like more of a desert uh, vivarium would definitely take a little bit more of a uh, – what? what's the word? Definitely a little bit more time, a little bit more thought, than, um... But but I would
2: say with most animals, so like Euromastics, we like stick like mercury vapor bulbs in there and are like hitting them with like 120 yeah. degrees of heat. Like with a crest, or excuse me, with leopard geckos, people actually use mealworms and darkling beetles, which are their adult form mm-hmm. as a cleanup crew. Uh, and the they don't eat the adults because the adults are just tasteful. Yeah. And people have kind of are figuring out other creative solutions for arid um, cleanup crews like that. And I would say that's almost the the cutting edge of vivarium development at the moment. Uh, but if people are interested in that, I would encourage them to pursue it, uh, because that's the only way we're going to continue to grow our ability to keep species under naturalistic conditions.
1: Because, yeah, I've kept a few scorpions. They weren't, it wasn't, you know, they were desert species like dune scorpions or something. Uh, and I never did anything bioactive with them. But I did use some of that excavator stuff that Zoo Med makes. And watching mm-hmm. them like tunnel into that and do their thing was really cool. Like, I, I actually want to do that again at some point. Like, I'd like to get desert scorpions again mm-hmm. and set yeah. them up in a similar thing. Cause you can, and I see a lot of people do this with uh, <clears throat> the uh, the ant setups that are getting super popular. I oh, yeah. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah. formicariums. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, some of those that people are making are actually looking pretty cool, too. They're not, like, natural, but they do have, like, decor and stuff in them mm-hmm. that makes them look really neat. And so it's, you know, I'd like to do that again with desert scorpions just because it's so cool to see them. You know, you, if you have it set up right, they usually dig along the sides of the, you know, the uh, cage or critter keeper, or whatever are keeping them in. And so you can kind of see them when they're not out and about, but you can also make it look cool and interesting even if you don't see them that much. Right. Same thing with tarantulas. Tarantulas you you know, I know a lot of people put pothos in with their ornamentals and stuff like that. Uh it's probably a actually, little more interesting with with the South American species that web a little more than than ornamentals do, but
2: you know, it's funny. I didn't think of it when I first did the podcast, but I've actually built a vivarium for a bird eating tarantula. I just it wasn't mine, so I didn't remember it.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a species yeah. that's really popular that people do that with. Like that, that's the yeah. one those in uh, the 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 H uh, gigas, the Cameroon, or there's some sort of African species that's like they're they're typically found near water or something like that. I forget the common name of them. Uh, it's the Histocrates or something like that. Uh, those and the the bird eaters are really popular with the the natural setups in the in the invert world. Yeah.
0: Yeah. When it came, when it comes to inverts, I'm definitely not a. Uh not big into it you know at all i miss them not a, not a big spider guy I miss but they, them, if, man. if that You're would so be much fun. that would actually be something i'd be pretty interested in you know get get doing if i ever went you know the bioactive route mm-hmm. you know do something with like a bird eater i feel like that would be uh that'd be a really cool you know display i'd like to do it with bark scorpions
1: again because i kept florida barks and arizona barks and the communal species of scorpions are really fun because it's really cool to see them do their thing. And, you know, eventually you get babies and it'd be really neat to do a, a natural setup with a group of those for again. Sure. For sure.
0: All right. So on here we've got um, exoterras. You know, is that... Was that a good, you know, kind of type of enclosure yeah, what's your, to use for... What's your
1: take on those?
0: Yeah. I think any...
2: I think exoterras and any of the front opening terrariums make excellent vivariums, but I would also say that if you're, you know, a 13-year-old kid and you want to make a vivarium and the only thing you have is a 20-gallon that you dug out of your dad's garage that you shouldn't let the fact that you don't have an exoterra stop you, um, I think the reason people tend to favor those vivariums is because they offer really excellent airflow. Um, But, you know, the flip side of that coin is if you're working with something like dart frogs, you're going to have to make modifications to the lid in order to hold in the proper amount of humidity. Mm. Um, and so I think really what it comes down to is that plants can't survive stagnant air very well. Uh, and so maybe if you're working with a top down lid, so like a normal aquarium, you just need to make sure that you have enough ventilation holes in there and that you're actually even just taking the top off the tank once a day, even if it's only for 10 seconds, just to allow the exchange of some new oxygen into Mm -hmm. that tank, carbon dioxide for the plants. Um, but I certainly think well Exoterras are a great option. and if you're working you know on um, a large budget and that's something that you can do, it's definitely my preferred option, but you shouldn't not do a vivarium uh, simply because you don't have the money to afford an Exoterra or a Zilla or whatever the case may be.
1: And what do you do to the lids as far as the mods go? You just you do yeah. you just take the the screen top that comes with it and just replace it with a solid piece of Plexi or something
2: yeah so i've done a couple of things one of the the things i did at first was getting pieces of glass and just putting them over the screen panels and yeah. leaving the lid as it was and that worked okay it uh, makes
1: that I screen rust though because i did it with the uh, i had a rainbow boa and a small one at one point and i yeah, noticed the it, screen rusted within probably a week or started yes, that, to
2: that was my experience of it as well so that was not a long-term solution for me yeah uh, and then so the next option i decided to do was i cut the screen out entirely out of the ZoomEd ones, which have, instead of having multiple panels, it's just one large panel of screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I replaced, I put a piece of glass that was cut larger than the screen on top and duct tape that on. And so that replaced the entire thing. Uh, and that works pretty well for Dart Frogs. But it was not ideal for me because I was having to open the tank door every single day to get enough airflow in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, because I'm kind of inclined for the DIY stuff, what I actually went up doing was... Snipping out all the plastic attachments for the lid uh, with just a pair of snips, and then I used uh, window framing material to build a like a screen for the back of the tank out um, th- of like the aluminum framing that's probably only a half inch across, and I stuck that in the back, and then I cut a piece of glass to fit onto where the lid used to fit. So it's sitting uh, on that little lip there,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so basically the air will come in through the front grate. And then go to the back of the vivarium, go up the background, and then go out that. So it allows a nice draft of air through the tank constantly. So my plants are getting good um, airflow.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. Now, as far as like if you were doing a dart frog vivarium, uh, I know a lot of people like to use grapevine and stuff in these natural setups. My experience with that is if it gets if it's kept moist for anything longer than like four days, it starts to mold really fast. Is that, yeah, is that something you need to stay away grapevine. from for the most part, or is that something you use and just let it kind of do whatever it needs to do with the bioactivity and, and everything?
2: Well, I think every wood has an appropriate setting, uh, and every piece, every different kind of wood can be used in different ways. Um, so, grapevine just in general cannot be used in rainforest setups, especially for amphibians.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, but for example, things like Malaysian driftwood work really well. Cork bark works really well. Uh, I'm sure there are some others that I'm just not thinking of off the top of my head, but Malaysian uh, driftwood and cork bark are two that I have really stick to to my dart frog tanks because they hold up really well for a long period of time. Uh, and they also retain humidity, which is great because in about a year, all of a sudden you'll notice this moss that you never put in your tank growing all over <laughs> your driftwood because the spores came in on your plants, which is... That's a great feeling. You know your tank is established when plants start to grow that you didn't put in them.
0: (laughs) That's a pretty good indicator. That's really cool, man. Uh, I've never never even thought about something like that. But yeah, that was, yeah, for sure. Now,
1: if you're starting a new viv, how long do you usually, like you talked about (laughs) cycling, how long do you let something cycle before you decide to start putting something in it? Or I guess... sort of the yeah. what what's your deciding factor for what you put in it you just kind of do whatever you think would look cool is there sort of any science behind what you pick out for for what's going in there other than what's native or close to native to what the species is is naturally coming from
2: yeah so i think the you're talking about plants in terms of what species right
1: yeah just just in general as far yeah, as I like think... what what layout you have and what you what plants you decide to use and, and what works... Are there some that work better than others and some that are kind of the standard as far as vivariums go? Because I know pothos are really popular. Um, I know ficus is is fairly popular as well or the, uh, I think, umbrella trees is what... Is that ficus as well or is that something else?
2: Yeah, yeah, the schlofera. The yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I would say that uh, in, because people can make vivariums for lots of different animals, it's always going to come down to... If you can get a plant from an animal's native host range, I think that's awesome. Like uh, when I did keep a gargoyle gecko vivarium, I had a um, bird's nest fern in there, which is native to the island of New Caledonia. Mm-hmm. And the reason I did that is because I noticed that both crested geckos and gargoyle geckos were inextricably attracted to fake bird's nest plants that I had bought from Michael's. Like they huh. all the time sleep in them. And so I was like, you know what, I'm getting them bird's nest ferns because clearly they like it. Uh, And so there's definitely something to be said about offering your animals plants that are native to their home range. Um, But I think more than that, what I do is I look at habitat structure. So basically what that means is that if I know an animal comes from a place that has a really thick canopy, I'm looking for a plant that grows really dense with really big leaves and is climbing Um, because I might not be able to grow trees in an 18 inch cube, but I can probably grow a vining plant all over the top of it. Right. Uh, Or maybe if I'm working with a species that I know is a grassland species, I'm trying to find a grass that I think will, even if it's not the exact same, even family of grass, uh, will help to kind of replicate the behavior of stalking its prey to the grass. Mm -hmm. And so I'll give a little tip here. Uh, oat grass, which is something you can order off, you know, Amazon or get through any health food store. Lots of people drink it, like uh, they sprout it and then they use it in smoothies. Is one of the few times of grasses that does really, really well in vivariums. So often people struggle to find grasses for use of the grassland species, uh, and so oat grass seeds are a really good one to try for people looking for a grass plant. Was there? I'm sorry. Was there a second part to that question? I, I, well,
1: what was uh, the cycling like? How long do you yeah. cycle a, a tank before you put anything in it?
2: Yeah. And so I think that like we were talking a little bit about before, that's going to be highly dependent. What I like to see bare minimum is that my plants are growing before I put anything in there. So uh, maybe I'm really new to this and it takes me six weeks to get my plants growing. Uh, And I totally get that you really want to throw some granules in there beforehand. Mm -hmm. But when you see new leaves on a plant, what that means is the roots have already grown on that plant. And so that basically tells you that your animals aren't going to rip that plant out of the substrate when you put them in. And so bare minimum, I wait to see new growth on the like, leaves of that plant or, or your plants that you've put in there. Uh, and then depending on the species that I'm looking at, I'm trying to also figure out how much damage I think this animal is going to do when it first gets in the tank. <laughs> so if I'm like thinking, all right, I'm working with an emerald green tree monitor. Uh, I might want those uh, ficus trees to have grown in for like two and a half years before I think about putting an animal in. Mm -hmm. Because I know as soon as it gets in there, it's going to start ripping up bark and stuff like that. Uh, And so most people aren't keeping Emerald Green Tree monitors, so that shouldn't be a problem for most people. Uh, But the bigger and more destructive your animal is, the more you have to start thinking about how much is this animal going to disturb this system? And is it going to disturb it beyond repair once I put it in?
1: And do you do false, like, as far as the substrate goes, do you do false bottoms on all of yours? Does somebody have to do false bottoms on them? No.
2: People don't have, well, okay. If you're keeping, like, dart frogs, yes, you have to do a false bottom. Okay. But if you're you're not keeping a rainforest setup, then you don't necessarily have to keep a false bottom. So, for example, when I kept my African fire skink, who I kept as, like, a grassland species, uh, an African savanna, I did not have a false bottom on her tank. Um, And so the reason we have false bottoms in vivarium keeping for those who are uninitiated to the cult is because if you accumulate standing water at the bottom of your glass aquarium and your substrate is sitting in it, it can cause that substrate to become anaerobic. And so basically what that means is your living room will start to smell like a swamp or your animal room or wherever you keep them. And so in order to prevent that, we have a layer of either gravel or pipe or whatever the case may be to allow water to drain away from our substrate in our vivariums. Uh, and that kind of mimics uh, the water table that we have out in nature.
0: Oh, okay. So,
1: yeah, that... so like you see, like there's the hygro balls and stuff yeah, that they sell. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've My experience with, with doing quote-unquote naturalistic setups is I had some Amazons, some Treboas many years Oop. ago. Um, I had a pair of them in a, I don't remember what size tank it was. Um, they were both small. They were both neonates still. Uh, but I did a false bottom um, with a screen over top of that to keep, you know, the, the dirt from going, mm-hmm. basically defeating the purpose of having the false bottom to begin with. And then I Ooh. had just uh, a pothos in there, and I think I had some grapevine or something uh, for wood. And it worked out pretty well, but that's something I've always wondered is is with bioactive setups, do you have to have a false bottom, you know, every time? But I guess it makes sense if you have a much more... Uh, like waterlogged species, so to say. Um, having somewhere for that water to go makes makes a lot more sense.
2: Sure. For a beginner, unless you're working with like, you know, if you're working with a leopard gecko, you should never be spraying enough that you should be accumulating water yeah. at the bottom. Yeah, of your tank yeah day, right? exactly. But as a beginner, I would say it's a safety net. I mean, in theory, maybe, maybe, you could do a dart frog tank without a drainage layer if you were, you know scientifically precise about how much water you put in the tank Mm -hmm. Um, but in general that drainage layer is a safety net the bigger your drainage layer is the bigger your safety net and so as a beginner um i just don't think there's a good reason not to ever have a drainage layer in a vivarium even if it's only a half inch deep
0: okay gotcha um so when with with uh, back to your plants, um, is there ever a time, say they have been growing for x amount of years, you know they've been doing really well? Is there ever a time that you have to replace them because, say, the roots have just grown throughout it too much or anything like that? You know, when do you when do you want to replace your your plants? Yeah, so
2: I've never felt the need to replace plants, but I have seen people tear down vivarians because they were ten years old oh, and. Wow. Not just, you know, and that's not a hard date, but I think really what it boils down to is when you start a vivarium, most of the nutrients are going to be in the soil initially, and then you're going to supplement with a certain amount of nutrients when your animals, you know, go to the bathroom and stuff. Um, But we have to understand that plants don't just use nutrients as some kind of ephemeral thing. They require specific amounts of kind of very odd things sometimes. So maybe in 10 years, there's not enough boron left in your tank Mm -hmm. uh, or, you know, very odd micronutrients that plants need. And so even though, for example, when our frogs do go to the bathroom or whatever animal, they might be providing a lot of nitrogen and phosphorus and other maybe potassium things that are important macronutrients for plant growth, things that make up a large amount of plant tissue that after a long period of time, it can be hard to get the very small amounts of very specific things that our plants need to grow back into our vivariums. And so I think a lot of people just kind of in the hobby haven't really figured out a good way to deal with this yet, especially because it's very hard to, we can't really apply fertilizers on top of our animals. Right. Um, But one trick that I have picked up, and uh, I don't know of anyone else in the hobby doing this, but it's worked extremely well for me, and I'll share it on the podcast today, is I kept bonsai trees for a while, I still have one, and people there were spraying their bonsai trees with an organic kelp slurry. Uh, and that, that is what it sounds like. It's basically kelp that they purify and uh, grind up. And then they people spray it on their bonsai trees. And the reason they do that is it because it provides lots of micronutrients. So all the different kinds of small things like selenium that plants need in very small quantities that helps the plant grow on top of the additional fertilizers that you're providing it with. And so I decided I was gonna apply it to my vivariums at my own risk, and um, my plants exploded. And keep in mind, there's, there's no nitrogen really in this. There's not a lot of phosphate, but there's lots of micronutrients in it. And I saw the most plant growth I've seen in a few months ever in my tanks. And, and I applied it to a couple of different vivariums and I had it, the same effect in all of them. Uh, How often so were you doing that? I, I've only done it once so far. I'm probably gonna do it again. Um, I'm not looking for my vivariums to become dependent on it, but I am using it as a supplemental technique. And so I try to conceptualize everything within the context of an actual ecosystem event. And so maybe, you know, the valley above the meadow or the mountain above the meadow uh, gets a heavy rainfall and there's a landslide and a mm-hmm. bunch of aerial slides down the mountain and it reinvigorates plant growth in the meadow the dart frogs are living in. And that's kind of how I think of that event as, okay, this is a a periodic event that might occur in nature that's reinvigorating this landscape with some of these micronutrients.
1: Hmm. Now, as far as like the soil, is there, is there, I know a lot of people like to use eco-earth and some of theirs are a mixture of peat and sand, or what do you, what do you like to prefer as far as soil goes? And do you do any pH testing on that periodically in it? So...
2: I don't test for pH, but I can tell you that it definitely gets more acidic over time because soils naturally in a contained environment become yeah. more acidic over time due to microbial processes. Um, I mean, we're talking, a, we're not talking about a pH of 4.0 here. It's its not going to hurt your animals. It's just that um, it'll become more like maybe like a peat bog, for example, where right. it's just a little bit more acidic, uh, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. I mean, lots of mosses actually prefer an acidic environment. Mm-hmm. And so to get to your question about substrate mix, I think to, you know, I could do, I could talk for three hours about substrate in a vivarium. (laughs) So what I'll say is that I could give you um, a recommendation for dart frog vivariums, which I know that's something you're interested in doing. So maybe that'll be interesting to you. Uh, And I, but I would say that, for example, if I was going to go out and do green and old vivarium, right, we go back to that basic kind of setup. Mm hmm. I would go online and I would look at pictures of what green and old vivariums look at and or excuse me, if green and old habitat looked at. And I would be particularly looking to see what the soil looked at Uh, in the U.S. I might even go on the USGS's website and look up soil maps within their range
1: Mm -hmm. uh, and
2: see what the soil is actually made of. Uh, And that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to go out and buy those exact supplies from a chemical supplier. But uh, the soil isn't just the fuel your plants. It's something your animals are going to be interacting with. Uh, And in nature, I think people have this fear that if their animals ever touch their substrate, they'll get impacted. And lots of scientific studies have shown that animals actually get a large part of their nutrients like calcium from soil actually getting onto their prey items as they're handling them and um, swallowing them. And so to me, there's no magic bullet of put this with this and this and put it in your vivarium and it'll work for every one of your animals. Uh, And I think that's part of the reason why people often fail. Um, with vivariums and maybe have problems with impaction is they're just kind of following a recipe that they found online that maybe isn't at all appropriate for the animals they're working at with. So for example, leopard geckos, I would never keep them on just sand because if you look up a picture of them, they live on sandy soil. Mm-hmm. But that's a very different thing than pure sand. Yeah. Um, and so to kind of, you know, give you a direct answer, I'll talk about dark frog soil. And so maybe what I would do is I would go out and get a bag of Scott's topsoil, which is an organic topsoil with no additives. So it doesn't have um, things like perlite or um, vermiculite in it, which Mm -hmm. are like basically volcanic stones that add drainage. Um, But what it does have is a lot of organic material. So that's going to serve to provide carbon and some nitrogen to our plants as they grow. And then I would be adding coconut fiber, sand, and um, excuse me, what's the other one that I'd be adding? I haven't made a vivarium in a long time now, (laughs) uh, breaking the addiction, so to speak. Um, but coconut fiber, sand, uh, leaves usually is something that I'll mix in there and also the topsoil. And that's going to provide a nice mix where I'm going to get a lot of, oh, and sphagnum moss. Okay. And that's going to provide a nice amount of drainage as well as moisture retention and nutrients. And so like people often ask, well, could I just do coconut fiber? And coconut fiber is a purely organic substrate. And so in nature, when if we go out and pick up a handful of soil, the vast majority of that is inorganic particles. And so uh, coconut fiber substrate in a dart frog vivarium, as is, is alien to that animal as pure sand is to a leopard gecko.
0: That makes sense. Wow. And think about that. And, you know, there's so many people out there that, you know, even if they're not necessarily going for, you know, a, a bioactive situation, um, just, you know, fake plants, you know, they want to make it look natural, but, you know, it's not, it's not self-sustaining, you know, right. you know, use leopard geckos, for instance, you know, they automatically want to go for that calcium sand crap that, you know, you can get at any pet store, you know, it's the first thing anybody wants to go to. And I've, I've personally have never been a big fan of keeping animals on sand, but, you know, that's just a, a personal thing.
2: No, I, I, calcium sand is a terrible product. Yeah. I mean, that, that is a product that <laughs> will cause impaction.
0: Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, that, that was my, that's my big thing. You know, I used to work at, you know, I've worked at a couple pet stores and, you know, people come up like, Oh, is this okay for my leopard gecko? It says, it's, you know, it's calcium sand it says they can digest it. And I'm like, yeah, no, they they can't at all. Yeah. Um, you eat a
1: handful yeah. of it and tell me. if. You're <laughs> what are your favorite plants? Is there, is there any particular plants that you you seem to use kind of across the board that are yeah. reliable for a multitude of, of different species from different areas? Sure. So
2: one of them that I think is really awesome is this fern called lemon button fern. Um, sometimes it's referred to as lemon butter fern. Uh, it's a common name, so really either one is correct. Um, but... It's a, it's a fern, it doesn't get that big, maybe about 12 inches max, um, and I've seen it work in both very humid setups, like dart frog setups, and I've also seen it work in temperate setups. So um, the setup that it was working in was an eastern legless lizard, which is a uh, southeastern United States native, a very cool animal. Um, and the reason why I like it so much is not only is it a, a very beautiful fern and it develops these little white spots where the spores are developing on it, um, but it sends out these runners. And so if you let it sit in a tank for like a year, year and a half, uh, I'm sure your listeners are starting to notice that vivariums are kind of a long-term game, um, that it will actually basically take over entire portions of your vivarium. And you can pull it out if you want, but because it sends out these runners, it'll just keep making little plants for you, um, which I find to be a very cool effect in your vivarium, or w- whether that be a temperate species or a tropical species. And so, uh, I guess another a good one that I like a lot is uh, Ficus pumila. This is a and pothos is obviously readily available and works for grows a vast in pretty
1: setups. much any anything you put it in.
2: Yeah, weedy hands stands up to most things. Um, definitely pothos is another good one, and Ficus pumila is like pothos's little brother. Uh, it's smaller leaves. Uh, it takes a little bit longer to get established, but once it does, it also grows uh extensively and because it's smaller leaves instead of just having like giant leaves on your background you'll just get a wall of green uh which have uh, the all these tiny little green leaves uh and that's another species that works in uh anything from really tropical to really temperate setups uh and just so i don't just completely ignore arid setups i would say that uh aloe plants actually make really awesome um
1: yeah.
2: uh plants for arid terrarium so if you're doing like a uh a leopard gecko set up, so- mm-hmm. uh, aloe vera is an awesome one for that.
1: Hmm. What about, what's your experience with bromeliads?
2: Yeah, so I love bromeliads. Uh, I've had great success with them. I've actually, I went to a school where they were, as an undergraduate, where they were growing bromeliads in the greenhouse. And I, like, traded for some from some people who were taking a plant propagation class. Because they had these giant bromeliads that they were growing in the greenhouse. And I wanted them so my dart frogs could deposit their tadpoles. In these bromeliads,
0: oh.
2: and the thing that I would say about them is that they are. So I've seen them in Costa Rica, actually in the wild, and they're growing, you know, maybe a hundred feet up in the canopy. And so if you put them in a glass box with no ventilation, they will rot away and die. Uh, they absolutely need airflow. Um, but if you give them that airflow. They are an awesome species. They'll put out pups, which are basically little plants that grow right off the mother that you can Mm -hmm. cut off and put in other places in your tank. Uh, And if you're keeping a species that you don't want to put a water bowl in your tank, so you don't want to kind of ruin the natural aesthetic, if you will, they have a cup that holds water. So your animal will just naturally go over to this plant and drink from them which I think is a really cool way to aspect or incorporate a water bowl into your five area. Yeah. Yeah.
0: That's actually, that that's really cool. I, I didn't think about something like that. That's a, that would definitely, definitely add to the, the naturalistic mm-hmm. uh, look of the enclosure.
1: <clears throat> Where do you get most of your, is there a certain supplier and that you like to get a lot of your, your stuff from as far as your setups or is there like as far as lids and uh, you know anything pre-made soil wise plants is there anyone in particular you like to get a lot of that stuff from or is it pretty much make a trip to lowe's and kind of do it yourself
2: so a lot of it is do it myself but it doesn't need to be that way for people who are maybe newer (coughs) to this aspect of the hobby and just don't feel comfortable with that yet um josh's frogs is an excellent uh vendor they provide a lot of stuff like you can buy soil mixes from them you can buy lots of different plants from them Uh, i would also say it's worth looking to see if you have local breeders um maybe dart frogs because they often carry a lot of vivarium supplies Mm -hmm. Uh, someone who was a real resource for me was um a local uh, frog breeder um where near where i did my undergraduate um, work and he sold me a lot of cool plants and i would go in there and buy soil and leaves and stuff like that from him uh and so Definitely, if you need to buy online, Josh's Frogs is a great place, maybe if you're living in a place that doesn't have a big reptile community. But reptile expos increasingly have vivarium supplies at them if you can find someone selling poison dart frogs. And online, Josh's Frogs, and I would also say New England Herpetoculture are two great websites that offer vivarium supplies.
1: Okay. I've, I've looked at New England Herpetoculture site before, and they do have a ton of cool stuff on there. Um, yeah and i've been on josh's frogs before because there was a point i went through this kind of weird phase and i'm still not completely out of it where i wanted bumblebee toads okay i don't know why i just they look really cool and i <laughs> I just i wanted some yeah um haven't bought any yet i may eventually i don't know the amphibian thing i, I don't know I, snakes kind of spoil you in they, terms of like upkeep really do, and stuff man. where it's <laughs> like wait i gotta feed this thing like daily like, yeah oh, man. <laughs> Dude. I used
0: to keep leopard geckos, and uh, then I started keeping snakes, and I was like, "Man, this is like so much easier. This is night and day, dude. Like, I, I have to take care of this lizard every single night, you know, give it something. But I started keeping snakes, man. I was like, I only have to feed this thing once a week, and when it gets big, once every two weeks, mm. and for carpets, when it gets big, once a month. Like, yeah. man, this <laughs> this is easy. You should have been doing this from day one. <laughs> yeah, for real. For um,
1: misting, do you use mist like mist kings, or do you just do it by hand? I guess uh, kind I've of... always
2: done it by hands, and I think it's a very achievable to do it by hands. Uh, I'm thinking about getting a mist king, and there, for the people, I would suggest a mist king too. Would be people maybe who might be going away for a week at a time yeah. because your dart frogs, if you if they're well fed, your dart frogs can go a week or a week and a half without eating. They'll be hungry when you come back, but they'll be fine. But if you don't spray them for a week and a
1: half, you'll have it's problems. It's not good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I feel like the mist king thing seems to make more sense for people that have, you know, a handful of vivariums that need that on yeah. a regular basis. You know, if you have one or two, then I guess, you know, spraying them down yourself makes a little bit more sense. Because mist kings aren't cheap. No, they're not. <clears throat> they're Does, nice, is, but they're
0: expensive. Is there ever a situation where you'd recommend, like, a fogger for for any of your vivariums or any for anybody looking to get into it?
2: Yeah, I think... Uh, Oh, Fogger is a great choice. Uh, it's be- In my opinion, a Fogger serves a very similar function to a Mist King, except for the fact that it provides the additional aesthetic. Right, um, yeah, yeah. So, you know, if you could either invest in a Fogger, I would say if you are just like the aesthetic, or if you need to serve a similar function to a Mist King. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only problem with the Fogger is it's harder to distribute among multiple tanks as opposed to a Mist King. Right. Okay. Uh, and then I would say about waterfalls because people often fall into this trap, and I fell into this trap with my first tank, getting back into the hobby. Is people go and get a 12 by 12 by 18 and a hatchling gargo or crested gecko. Garg- go, I'm going to put a waterfall in it. And I can tell you that it is a pain in the ass to put a waterfall in a small tank. Uh, and if that pump ever breaks, it will be a major hassle to take it out. So, while well, waterfalls and vivariums are awesome, I would really recommend a sump if you're going to do that in external plumbing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they tend to work better in really big tanks where your animals can get away from the waterfall. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm not... I would never tell someone, don't ever do a waterfall on a vivarium, but I would tell people to think carefully before they just go ahead and throw a waterfall mm-hmm. on a vivarium.
1: Now, and for what the water you use, are you using purified, distilled... Uh, does that... I know with... with amphibians it matters like you want to use distilled you don't want to use purified you want to use as pure water as well I would
2: not what's I wouldn't use distilled water on an amphibian and the reason I wouldn't do that is because they have extremely thin skin they have some of the thinnest skin in the animal kingdom Mm -hmm. and so if you spray them with distilled water because that water is totally lacking and I know the mist king does spray them with distilled water and people don't seem to have a problem with it Um, but in my personal opinion uh, when you spray them with distilled water, it's going to suck um, salts out of their body oh. uh, just based on the principles of osmosis. Yeah. So it, I in my opinion, I, I just spray them with either spring water or tap water that I treat. Um, I've never had an issue, and I feel much more comfortable spraying my animals with uh, solutions that are the same uh, concentration that their body fluids would be.
0: Mm-hmm. Hmm. And what what would you use to um, to treat your water? Like, what kind of product would you would you do that? Yeah, with? so
2: there's like Reptisafe, which is a reptile specific. Yeah, program. yeah, I'm
0: fa- I'm familiar with that with uh with uh, like turtles and stuff. Back when I was yeah doing stuff. With
2: but that. really, any I mean, you could buy if an aquarium water conditioner is sold for cheap in your hometown, and you can buy a big thing of it. It's all the same product at the end of the day. Hmm. So any kind of a, a pet-safe water conditioner is suitable.
0: Okay,
1: got gotcha. you. Cool. What are your what's like five species that you really want to set up in a natural setup, but haven't yet? Oh,
2: okay. So, uh, I'm I am dying to do emerald green tree monitors. Uh, That's a really cool one. Mm Hmm. Uh. So I'll I'll probably never keep uh, hot animals, but I really would like to do uh, yellow eyelash pipers. Yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah. I'm not willing to. I don't want them so bad that I'm willing to die over them, which is why I probably won't keep them. Yeah. Uh, but I, when I went to Costa Rica, I specifically went to a park just to see them. They are one of my favorite snakes. Uh, yeah, one of would, my those would be cool. Yeah, they would. There, I mean, you know, there aren't that many bright yellow snakes in the world. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think one concept, and this just goes to show how far down the rabbit hole you can go with vivarium keeping is I'd really like to get like five line skinks or some other kind of a native skink because I find skinks mm. to just be incredibly awesome. pets, very intelligent, very active, um, and get like a 250 gallon tank and breed all of their food inside the vivarium and never feed it. Um, that
1: would be neat too.
2: Yeah, like just to have like a fruit, fruit producing tree or bush in the tank and then have there be insects that eat those berries inside of the tank uh, and then produce enough food for your one or two skinks. I mean, it'd be a huge tank for a very small lizard, but you'd get to say it's an entirely self-contained ecosystem, mm-hmm. and I think something beautiful about that.
1: They're fun to watch. There's a small group that hangs out on my, my front porch, and if I'm out there smoking a cigar or something, I'll sit there and watch the male chase the females around. They're pretty funny.
2: yeah, yeah. I was at the National Zoo recently and watched the 5 line skink run into the Komodo dragon exhibit, and I was like, "Buddy, you were hanging out in the wrong
0: place." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, "No, man, we're cool. Don't worry about it." <laughs> You're on the wrong side of town, buddy. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so, would you ever consider keeping something like a like a green tree python in a bioactive setup?
2: So, uh, you know, you guys might call me a heretic for this, but I've actually I've never owned a pet snake.
0: Oh uh, wow. Okay. That,
1: how you're missing out super easy (laughs) yeah
2: but uh, I think I'm I might be doing some experiments with some snakes for my research uh, and if they'll either need to find homes or be euthanized at the end of the trial so I might wind up taking some home at the end of the trial so I don't have to put them down Uh, so I might wind up with some snakes uh, a lot of snakes in you know a couple of months
1: and is that that's relating to the, the the snake fungal disease work you're doing
2: Yes uh, okay. that's that's the snake fungal disease work,
1: which for the record he's he's doing some some research into, and we were planning another episode just to talk about that because that could take up you know two hours easy, considering how uh how crazy that thing is that that situation has gotten yeah
2: so. yeah, our lab team just came back from a, a herpetological conference the other day giving some presentations on the state of snake fungal disease in Tennessee, mm-hmm.
1: That's great. That whole thing, if you haven't checked it out, definitely do some reading on it. It's pretty interesting. Uh I think most people in the in the reptile world that stay in the loop are are pretty well aware of it, but if you're not, do some some googling and and read about it and we definitely want to have you on for an episode on that soon. Cuz <coughs> I think it's pertinent information. Well, what about you, Bratz? What's your what's your five that you would like to do of a vivarium species? My vivarium
0: <laughs> Honestly, just from, from the sounds of it, you know, I, if, you know, I never want to get big into the chondro world. I'm going to kind of leave that to you. If you and I are going to continue this, this partnership we got going on, but I definitely would like to do a nice display with a, with a green tree if I ever do start doing bioactives. Um, And then, you know, the dart frogs, dart frogs have always interested me. I've always thought they're just incredible little, little animals. Um, so that would be something I'd, I'd be interested in. Um, if I do, if I ever did anything with bioactive stuff, I would definitely want more of a, uh, animal that's going to be out a little bit more you mm-hmm. know you know like a green tree python for for instance you know using that that display something that's
1: not going to be curled up in the corner
0: right um, you know hiding all the time um so i would definitely have to put a lot of thought into it um maybe even amazon tree boas would be cool mm-hmm. you know somewhere down the down the line but i feel like those i've always
2: put, thought doing an amazon tree boa in the top of the tank with poison dart frogs in the bottom of the tank and do it as like a biotope
1: would be uh, an awesome.
0: Setup. that would be really cool that would be really cool. Um, or even something like an emerald tree boa, you know, mm-hmm. that would be, that'd be cool as well. I feel like the Amazons would be a little bit more destructive um, because yeah. they're a little bit more of an active species, you know, and yeah, yeah. in the boa world, I kind like of to, like to compare the green tree pythons are similar to the emerald tree boas. And then the carpets are more yeah. uh, sure. similar Amazon to the Amazons, like. you know,
1: yeah, I think yeah.
0: Amazons would definitely be more arboreal than carpets, uh, but you know, But yeah, maybe Amazon's and this is really, you know, the most I've, I've actually thought about doing bioactives, Uh you know, um. I don't know if i'll ever go you know balls to the wall with it but i think one of these days i definitely like to do something uh you know a couple enclosures even you know I, i've even considered getting a spider at some point so if i ever yeah. did, 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 did do that um i might go the bioactive route with something like a bird eater maybe a pink toe tarantula um,
1: sun tiger
0: yeah that i don't know what that is but <laughs> they're gnarly yeah they're fast and they're mean they're oh, nasty well, I, I don't want that man i want something but someone, they're pretty I don't do spiders running at me, man. I'm not afraid. I'm not one of those guys that are like afraid of spiders, but like I respect them. <laughs> I like it, just don't <laughs> let it touch me. <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've held a, a tarantula before. You know, I'm not, I'm not. I don't have like a fear of them, but you know, I'm not big into the arachnid world. I miss it. I know you do. You talk about getting them all the time. Mm, I do. Don't you have a couple scorpions still? Mm-mm. I thought you had those Mm-mm. little ones. No, oh, never mind. Nope. All right, so that man. was
1: your three. What's the other man, two?
0: Man, I don't know. What about you? What's some that you would like to keep? All right, all right. All right. <laughs> What's, what you got?
1: <clears throat> um. So I talked to in the group conversation with the three of us the other day. The the cyania. I feel like especially oh, when yeah. they're small like this would look really cool in something. Yeah. This, they, they, um, those would
0: be cool. Any, any, uh, any of the buoy. Yeah. yeah. Really cool.
1: <laughs> um, those bumblebee toads would be interesting cause those are kind of a savanna ish, grassland, grasslandish, Grash, yeah, grasslandish. <laughs> uh, they're not super like, they're not like dart frogs. They're not like tropical tropical. They're right. kind of, I guess borderline montane would kind of be the right term for it. Uh, dart frogs i really like you know any of the the phyla baits would be really cool either bicolor terabilis um yeah those are awesome i really like the tinctorius i like the atlantis and the powder blue morphs mm-hmm. um some of the blue uh, uh azureus okay or not uh not azureus aratus the blue aratus um okay yeah, yeah 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 there's I mean I, like dart frogs I used to read a lot about dart frogs because they've like they've always been an interest of mine, especially kind of in the in terms of toxicology and like dendrotoxins and mm-hmm. stuff like that I used to do a lot of reading about that kind of stuff so I'm somewhat well versed in the different species of them, but there's still plenty that I'm pretty clueless about but
0: well one uh one bioactive setup I just thought about um and that I remembered seeing that I really liked um is if I had the space, you know, and the money to set this up, I would do a really big uh leopard or bullfrog uh setup. That would be cool. Something with like half the enclosures like, you know, mm-hmm. a fully aquatic, you know, area for them to swim, then the other half is, you know, a bioactive uh land setup. Um but I would do it in like a really large you know, enclosure. Um, but I, I've always thought about that. And I thought it would be really cool to set something up like that, you know, just have like a pair of bullfrogs or even leopard frogs. Cause that's something, you know, that's kind of close to just, you know, my, my upbringing, you know, when it comes to herps, you know, it was, it started with me catching frogs in my yard, you know, Uh even to this day, I get, I get so excited when I find a bullfrog, you know, I, I absolutely love bullfrogs and leopard frogs. So that's definitely something I would look into, uh, once I have, you know, the means to do so. And even if I got, real crazy you know if i ever started doing this full time you know and really had the space and money i would even like to do something with like a, a dwarf caiman yeah i think that would be really cool to do some type of um like small crocodilian outdoor. species yeah. yeah exactly do something bioactive with those um but i definitely you know that would be high on my list, but that I'll would be even way far. I'll down even go
1: road. into turtles and say uh, diamondback terrapins or spotted oh, turtles would yeah. be cool. I really ter- like spotted I, turtles.
0: I love diamondback terrapins, dude. I really, really <clears throat> like terrapins. Uh, so that that would definitely be pretty cool. And in terms so of, I'm gonna lizards, I'm gonna
2: ask you guys a question because I actually don't know anything about this. Do you Do you have a plan for how you would do aquatic species bioactively? I have some thoughts, but I'm curious what you guys have. Honestly, no, I've had turtles I... <laughs> in the past
1: and never again. Yeah, like, no. That is a total, like, if money and time were no object, then sure, I'd think about it. But having turtles in the past and the amount of cleaning and water changes and stuff it just completely turned me off to them.
0: Yeah. It yeah, and just, I, I really um, have no experience with turtles. And like I said, this is the, one of the first times you know I've really discussed, you know, bioactive enclosures. not something I've looked at super deep into we've definitely uh, piqued my interest uh but let's I, i'd like to hear your ideas on uh, something fully aquatic you know say for turtles
2: yeah so i actually i keep a lot of aquatic animals too so i've read killifish in the past i've kept sparkling grommies like i said in what i would have considered to be a biotope or uh, like a vivarium style aquatic setup mm-hmm. uh, i'm setting up a, a another biotope style setup for a wild beta at the moment oh, nice. uh, and i think um it's interesting because people don't really talk about doing, um, you know, aquatic vivariums, but it's a really interesting topic and kind of something interesting for us to cover. Uh, And I would, the first two things that pop into my mind immediately are snails and floating plants. Um, Okay.
1: Cause I know they made those little like algae balls that you can put in the tanks, but I don't know how well those actually work. Yeah.
2: I don't know how much nutrients you'd actually want to pull out with those. Um, because it, it's the amount of nutrients you're pulling out is related to the amount of growth you're seeing. And those things grow extremely slowly. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you put like duckweed would be a pain, but if you put like Amazon frog bit or dwarf water lettuce or like a big floating plant in there, yeah. that's sucking nutrients out of the water column and you can just go and skim that out. Um, so that's kind of a similar idea to the, uh, you know, removing nutrients via plant growth. Uh, and then I would be using snails or maybe some other kind of a detritivore uh, to be removing some of the uh, mulm and other detritus that they would be producing, and then you could just remove snails manually.
1: Yeah. Huh. I don't well, know. We'll, that we'll... seems like it would, you would, A, need a pretty large yeah. space and something yeah. that could hold a lot of water, but it'd be cool. Yeah,
2: definitely. Yeah.
1: As far, like, to touch real quick, too, because we didn't really cover this, like, with your vivariums, what do you do for lighting? Oh,
2: I totally forgot about that. So I've used a range of things for lighting in the past. I think the most important thing, more than anything else, is having the right spectrum of light or the right color of light. And so the way we measure that uh, is with the unit called Kelvins. And so 65,000 Kelvins is the color temperature that most accurately mimics daylight. Mm-hmm. And so whatever light you decide to use, it should really be as close to 65,000 Kelvin possible. Um, in the past, I've done 5,000 Kelvin with you know, pretty good success, but I've had to use more light than I would have had to use if I had only used 65,000 Kelvin. So the further you deviate from that ideal spectrum, the more light you're going to have to use, essentially. Um, Personally, I like LEDs because they don't generate heat, which yeah. can be very helpful for a vivarium, uh, regardless of what species is going in it. Just because they're very enclosed, so they can build up heat. Um, but you can certainly have success with CFLs. I'm running CFLs over one of my dark frog tanks right now. Um, so CFLs and LEDs I find to be my um, weapons of choice when it comes to lighting my vivariums. Uh, and I find that uh, Josh's Frogs and New England herpetoculture both have some really nice lights that they put out. Uh, people say that you can get cheaper lights from China off eBay, uh, but I haven't tried those yet. And I'm sure they're not UL listed and I really don't want to burn my
0: apartment down. So I haven't <laughs> played with those too much yet yeah no i definitely uh i would definitely stay the yeah. the josh's frogs route uh, yeah <laughs> i don't that's one thing that I try not to skimp on when it comes to you know there there's certain things you know when it comes to my care that you know i'll i'll use to make my life you know easier and cheaper stuff like paper towels for bedding but you know when it comes to stuff like heating and lighting i really don't all that skip. money
1: you can save can go towards your deductible when you're <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah you know like stuff like thermostats to me you know when it comes to heating uh, you know snakes or lizards you know when it, you know for like uh flex watt heat tape you mm-hmm. know i one thing i i preach hard is do not skimp on a on a thermostat you know drop yep. the, drop to the 80 90 bucks you know i've spent 200 dollars on a on a couple good thermostats you know it's it's definitely not something you want to you want to skimp on um yeah
1: what do you do to heat the vivariums too if anything
0: yeah
2: so that it really depends on the species and the temperature i'm looking for yeah, and like if you were
1: doing like dart frogs
2: yeah, so the dart frogs. Um, basically, the room stays the temperature I need it to be at all times. So if I'm keeping, you know, a reptile room that has ten species in it, and one of them is dart frogs, and they all need different temperature ranges, it doesn't matter. The room's at 74 uh, okay. because that's what dart frogs need. And everything else I figure out separately um, because I just can't cool a vivarium. Um, I mean, not effectively. I yeah. could If I had ten of them uh, that I needed to cool. And so for me, the room stays at the right temperature for dark frogs. And then I heat other things independently. Uh, one thing that I've had a lot of success with is, so if I need to keep a vivarium warm, but I also want airflow and it's not an exoterra. what I've done in the past is so I'll put my heat and my UV in the middle, and then I'll cut panels of either acrylic or glass, depending on how humid it's going to be. So glass will work better for the more humid setups mm-hmm. because they're more I'll cut that so it's just in line with the light, and it runs to the edge of the lid, but I still have about one inch of ventilation on either side. And so basically what I find will happen is that the you'll have a column of heat below the light, and so that'll rise up through the light, and you'll draw in new air through the vents on the side. And so yeah. on tanks that don't have um, like a, a side or front panel, that allows me to get ventilation in the tank even when I need to heat it.
1: That makes sense. Well, we're at uh, hour 20 already. Um, yeah. I think we covered just about everything. Yeah, I think um, so. Where can, uh, where can people find you?
2: Yeah, so people can find me on lots of the different bioactive pages. Um, so if you are on, for example, Advancing Herpological Husbandry is a really good one. Uh, I'm on lots of the different dart frog pages. Um, lots of the so I think it's uh, reptile and amphibian bioactive setups uh, is another good one Uh, I'm on all those pages um, so if people want to find me they can find me on Facebook uh, and they can find me in any of those groups
0: cool what's your what's your Instagram name I know you have a I know you have an Instagram what is that yeah
2: so um, there was a time when I wanted to be a marine biologist uh, and that time was when I started my Instagram account so it's that marine bio dude and I should probably change it to that herpetology dude. <laughs> <laughs> but for right now, it's still that marine bio dude. And I do post updates of my vivariums more than anything else on there. So if people are interested in kind of following the work that I do with my tanks, uh, I'm going to be breeding some killifish in the near future. So if people are following, interested in following up on that project and stuff like that, they can uh, follow me on Instagram.
1: Yeah, you were one of the first people to hit me up when we started doing this too. And yeah, well,
2: I'm, I think it, you're doing a really great thing here, kind of getting the hobby out to more people. I've seen lots of herpetoculture herpeticulture podcasts pop up, but then they usually fade in and out. So I'm glad to see it's still going strong.
1: Yeah, and I'm this is that. good because like I, like I told you earlier, you know, I really want to kind of diversify and, and get – all facets of the hobby you know even if it's the stuff that we're not as into like beardies or leos or balls or right. anything like that you know we you can't call it the Herpeticulture podcast and only yeah. talk about morelia yeah. brats as, as,
0: yeah. as, as, <laughs> as much as as much as much to. as i want to and you not know, be uh, the carpet Python yeah no and see this is one thing that i show in my case yeah you know and the <laughs> one thing that i've actually really enjoyed about this podcast is you know as we get more people on, you know, it, it's, you know, I may not be able to ask all the right questions, but I, I learn a lot, yeah. you know, from talking to people, if, if it's a species I don't keep, you know, like for the, with this episode, for instance, I've never even really considered a bioactive setup, but after, you know, talking to Alex now, you know, it's really, you know, yeah. made, made once those cyanine get some and,
1: size on them, I think I want to try it.
0: Yeah. That. That, that would be, that'd be really cool. Something I'd like to help with. So yeah. we'll, we'll see about doing that, man yeah
2: i i've actually seen boyga in the wild so if you want pictures of their hat or just you know pictures of me holding them and smiling like an idiot (laughs) that
0: would that would be awesome i'd like to see those either way honestly that that's uh that's really cool yeah for sure they're pretty
1: cool i really like them so far granted i've only had them for like four days but they're really cool like it kind of you know when i i had to when I got them, I messaged Jordan. I said, when do I need to feed these? And this was the day that I got them. He said, feed them tomorrow. And yeah. he told me ahead of time, he's like, once these ship and they get to you, you're probably going to have to force feed them mouse tails for a few meals until they start getting back on pinkies on their own. Right. And so I had to do that yesterday or the night before. And uh, it was kind of a like I hadn't really played with them much since I got them. I pretty much set them up and put them away and didn't mess with them. And so, it, mm-hmm. you know, it took me a few minutes to kind of get a feel for them and kind of under get a you know get an idea of what they're like Mm -hmm. and they're they're interesting like they're they're not feisty they're not like the mangroves that are kind of like you know threat displays and like they're just they're very kind of timid right but at the same time like if they get pissed off like they you know they take a a whack at you or try to yeah so far i like them a lot um you know i I don't think i'm not gonna enjoy them as i go (laughs) Once they get a little more size to them, like I said, I'd like to bump them up to something you know, display-worthy and nice because they're really cool-looking snakes, especially when yeah, they're babies like this. Like It's sure. one of the coolest-looking snakes i think you yeah can...
0: that solid green head man yeah you can't, you can't beat that that's and i love cool. the big
1: the big the big scales like the big head scalation yeah. but it has that like black kind of lining in it sort of yeah. like the northern emeralds do yeah the those, basins and those eyes uh, man you can't beat those, yeah. those big They're eyes huge yeah it's so cool it look like aliens
0: and you thought my scrubs eyes were yeah were, were, were Your scrubs
1: don't take up 50 percent of the head yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> Yeah, for sure, for sure. But, but uh, we
1: appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, man, appreciate. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I hope uh, I, you know, had some valuable information. Yeah. for people who are listening to today? I'll be
0: picking your brain more about that stuff. Yeah, for yeah, sure. Definitely. You'll definitely be hearing from us soon about you know, about more uh, more bioactive info, and then you know another future episode about the about your, some of your research.
1: Yeah, that'll be cool. good too.
0: All right, man. Where well, can we people find you, well. you there, brats? find me yeah so
1: like i said
2: find me on instagram find me on facebook uh, if you guys need to um uh, people can reach out to me or they can find me on the groups um and uh thank you for having me on i really appreciate the chance to come on and talk about one of my passions in life
0: yeah man thank you all right dude we'll talk at you later then cool catch you later guys all right man. bye so that was that was fun. I enjoyed that. I learned a lot. Yeah. Always always more to learn. Alex is a real nice guy. Um y'all definitely check him out. Uh you heard his Instagram tag. Um, so be hey sure know. to subscribe before you do your
1: sign off. Yeah. Subscribe. Just subscribe, Google Play, iTunes, SoundCloud, follow us on Facebook at the Herpeticulture Podcast. Follow me on Instagram at Palmetto Coast Exotics. Did I just say the Palmetto What? Did I just say the
0: podcast Culture podcast? Or the... No, you said Palmetto Coast Exotics. Okay. Are you okay? I'm, dude. Did you just have a stroke? I might have. <laughs> <laughs> nice stroke, Justin. Follow
1: me on Instagram at Palmetto Coast Exotics and on Facebook at Palmetto Coast Exotics
0: and me as well you can find me on instagram and facebook at jlb morelia and you're welcome to add me as a friend on my personal uh facebook as well you can find me facebook
1: at, friends yeah
0: you know i've been getting a lot of friend requests lately but yeah as always keep keep uh keep on keeping on yeah let's garden
1: dig it and will work for you
0: <laughs> yeah keep letting us know what you guys <laughs> think of the uh of the show and if uh, you'd be interested in uh, coming on and yeah, talking about yeah, we really something. appreciate the yeah. complete lack of hate mail. Yeah, it's actually been really well so far. Pretty much everything has been a very positive feedback. So,
1: like when it's we started good. this, I was like, man, when are the when are the haters gonna start rolling in and being like, you all need to not not do this? And we haven't had anybody yet. So, yeah. hey. of course, knock on wood, because now <laughs> someone's gonna be like, oh, I'm gonna be the first one. You guys saw. <laughs> well.
0: They don't have to listen honestly it's that's not yeah, it's we not appreciate
1: everybody listening
0: to us, yeah, we appreciate got, the feedback, yeah, a lot of people you know we've we've got uh we've got quite a quite a handful of uh regular listeners, you know mm-hmm. I've had people tell me they binged every episode and are waiting for the next one to come out I asked them if their
1: ears bled yet
0: <laughs> <laughs> my ears bleed every time you open your mouth, so nope. but
1: <laughs> it's my my superpower, yeah. Not
0: surprised. It's like my (laughs) eyes bleed every time I look at you. Is that a. No. uh, No. Yeah, that's right. No response for that.
1: Nope. All right. We'll see
0: y'all later. Yeah.